You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Join me in your Bibles, please, in the book of Ephesians. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 17 through 24, and if you, if you want to, if, if you're one who likes to look in your Bible while I'm preaching from the Bible, you may also want to mark in your Bibles Romans chapter 1, because we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 1 today. There's quite a bit of overlap between what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and what he says here in Ephesians chapter 4. So we'll be in Ephesians 4, but we're also going to spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 1. So if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up here on the screen from both Ephesians and Romans. For those of you who might be here for the first time this morning, I just want you to know that I did not just wake up one day this week and decide that I was going to preach from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 this week. That's not how that happened. I've been preaching through the book of Ephesians for several weeks now, going verse by verse, section by section. So this just happens to be the text that we land on today. So with that out of the way, I invite you to join me, follow along as I read. God's Word says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And all God's people said, Father, thank you again for the privilege to stand here and to preach your word to your people. May we be edified through the preaching of your word. May we be strengthened and encouraged, and may we also be challenged, all of us here today, through the preaching of your word. And please allow me to do this task in the power of your spirit. May you be glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Have I told y'all lately I love my wife? (laughs) Amen. So about a week ago, Alina and I had a, shall we say, a heated disagreement. Probably the best way to put it. And it, it had to do with how to shepherd the heart of one of our young children in the home. And so this particular child, who will remain nameless... You, they were caught in a sin. There's just no other way to say it. It was, it was pretty common for this age, but I mean, that's what it is. It was sin, no doubt about it. So 
the sin was discovered, we addressed it, we moved on, we'd hoped that would be the end of the matter, but then it happened again. Like within a matter of a day or two, it happened again. So we addressed it again, now we added some corrective measures, you catch them by drift, and we moved on, and we were hoping that would, that would be the end of it. Well, then some, you know, a day or two passes, and it happens again, caught for the third time. And so we addressed it again. We, we went up a notch with the corrective measures, thinking, okay, this would be the end of it. Now, now we're just going to move on. And then it happened again. And so now mom and dad are at their wits' end. Am I, am I getting this right so far? More or less, this is, this is the way it transpired. So now mom and dad are at their wits end. We don't know what to do with this child. So mom brings the child into our room. We're having a conversation. At some point in time in the conversation, mom says to the child something along the lines of, have you asked Jesus to help you overcome this, this sin? And as soon as she said that, as soon as it hit my ears, I said, whoa, 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 time out. I, I objected, I, I strenuously objected to that, that line of argument. I said, hold, hold on just a second. I said, if this child is going to put away this behavior, if they're going to put away this sin, this child needs to resolve in their mind to do it. She looked at me like I was crazy. She, Aren't you a pastor, she says. Yes, I am a pastor. Aren't you supposed to be encouraging people to find spiritual answers to their spiritual problems? Yes. That's, aren't you supposed to be encouraging people to go to Jesus and seek help from Jesus in their battle against sin? Yes, that's who I am. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm guilty as charged. Without question. Am, am I right so far? Is this kind of how it went on? Okay. Well, anyway. Doesn't matter. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. Should we seek Christ's help in our battle against sin? Absolutely. Can Christ help us in our battle against sin? Absolutely. I don't deny that. And I wasn't denying it there. But what happens when you, when you tell someone that, and that's all you tell the person, and they, they go walk away, and, and, they, and they try that, and they do that, and then, and then they continue in the sin. What happens, what happens then? I've actually seen that play out sometimes. And it's not always pretty how it ends up. You know, what does it do to that person's faith? What does it do to their own faith? They begin to question, well, am I, am I really saved? Am I, am I really a Christian? So I don't deny, again, that we, you know, we should seek Christ's help in our battle against sin. I don't deny that at all. But here's one thing I want all of us to take away today. We are ultimately accountable for our actions. And at some point in time, we must resolve in our minds to put it away. We are not automatons. We are human beings. We have free will. We have the power to choose what we are going to do in any given situation. I, I believe that. I will believe that until the day that I, I die. Remember Galatians. I preached through Galatians. It was the first book I preached through when I got here. And remember the fruit of the Spirit. Everyone likes to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We all know the fruit of the Spirit, but sometimes we forget in the context of the fruit of the Spirit, there's a whole other list over here, and it's called the works of the flesh. And I made the point then, and I'll just remind you of it now. Paul's very clear there in Galatians, very explicit. He says, you have a choice to make. You can either submit to the works of the flesh, sin, or you can submit 
to the, the fruit of the Spirit. But ultimately, the choice is ours. And at some point in time, we must make that choice in our mind. So I bring this to your attention this morning because in this section of Ephesians, I believe Paul is making a very similar connection uh, between the choice of sin and how it relates to our thinking process. So notice what he says in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So the first thing I would just have you notice here is that, that Paul qualifies his words here as his testimony in the Lord. Sometimes we might say, when we want to convey the truthfulness of what we are saying, we might say, the Lord is my witness. And this is very similar to that, but the fact that it's coming from an apostle, it carries a lot more weight. This is tantamount to what Paul is saying here is, hey, what I'm about to say to you, this command that I'm about to give to you, it comes directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the authority of the Lord, Paul commands them to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. I don't know why the ESV uses the word do there in verse 17. I don't know why they chose to do that because the word do is not in the Greek text. He uses the word walk twice. And I, I, maybe they just thought that Paul was too redundant and they didn't want to put walk in there twice. But I really kind of wish they would have left it the way he said it. Because that word walk is so very important. Remember, we talked about this word last week. Uh, the second half of Ephesians is really framed around this word walk and what it, what it means to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we see this word walk in the Bible, typically it describes the general conduct or the, the general manner of one's life. I told you last week that God cares about the walk of our life. What we do in response to God's grace and what we do in response to God's love and what we do in response to God's salvation, it matters very much to God. And so we have a duty to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? The command here is to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Now this is kind of funny or ironic. I guess it depends on how you look at it. Because he's speaking to a primarily Gentile audience. In fact, some people might read this and go, Paul, that's kind of rude. Because <laughs> he's talking about their people. He's talking about their, their kinfolk. And so, you know, he's speaking primarily to a Gentile audience. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. The gist of the command is this. No, no longer walk according to the manner of life in which you once walked before you were in Christ. Remember this phrase, in Christ. It's a very important phrase that we find more than 36 times throughout the book of Ephesians. Our whole identity is bound up with us being in Christ. And so Paul is commanding them. He says, hey, now that you are in Christ, now that you are saints, now that you are part of the body of Christ, you must make a decisive break from your former identity. Before, before they were in Christ, they were, they were Gentiles. They were alienated from God, but now they are in Christ, and Paul wants them to live like it. Become what you are, Paul says. If you really are in Christ, then live like it. We could say it this way. Paul was from Missouri. He had a show-me attitude. I've been here for six months, and I've been waiting for six months to say that. <laughs> Finally had the opportunity. I think that's the first time I've said it. If I said it before, I apologize. I don't, I don't remember. 
But, but that's it right there. Paul, Paul we could say he's from Missouri. He's, I was really disappointed when I didn't have that on my license plate when I moved here, by the way. But, but Paul says, all right, you are in Christ. All right, now, now show me that by the way in which you live. Show me specifically by no longer walking, quote, in the futility of your mind. The Greek word for futility, it, it conveys something that's meaningless, useless, worthless, something that is empty. This word is found quite often in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes. You're familiar with Ecclesiastes where the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the author, the writer of Ecclesiastes says over and over and over again, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, same word in the Greek that's being translated here. There in Ecclesiastes, of course, it describes the futility or the emptiness of a life that is lived apart from the fear of the Lord. Without question, beloved, Paul's point is that life is vain, life is futile, life is without purpose. When one's mind, when one's thought process is not ordered around God and His purposes. I'm going I'm to say that again so that you can catch it if you want to write it down. Paul's point is that life is vain, life is futile, life is without purpose when one's mind when one, one's reasoning, when one's thinking, when one's thought process is not oriented around God and His purposes. Consider with me a few examples that we find prevalent in our society today. So, for example, consider the mind that is fixated on material possessions. We live in a very materialistic society. I don't have to stand up here and convince you of that. A lot of people, many people in our world, in our culture, they fixate on material things. They order their entire lives around the pursuit of material things, whatever that is. Riches, homes, cars, boats, clothes, you just, you just name it, it just keeps right on going. Remember what the Lord Jesus taught about those material things, though. The Lord Jesus taught us that such things will eventually uh, rot. They will rust. They'll, they'll be destroyed by moths. They will, they will return to the dust of the earth. Sometimes we need to remember the teachings of the Lord Jesus. They have no eternal value at all, and yet the human mind loves to fixate on such things as if they are the ultimate reality, and they're not the ultimate reality. God is the ultimate reality, and therefore our mind should be centered and focused around Him and Him alone. Amen. Consider the mind that is fixated on sexual pleasure. This one is also a big one in our society, in our culture today. There are many people today who believe that, that sexual pleasure is the ultimate reality, so much so that, that many people today now they, they, their, their identities are, are bound up in what they perceive to be their sexual identity. And just like material possessions, you know, sexual pleasure, it's fleeting. It does not last forever. Consider a mind that is fixated on sports. A, a mind who's a man, usually it's men, sometimes it's women, but you know, someone who, who lives and dies according to how their sports teams perform on the field or on the court. I, I know this one firsthand because this used to be me, at least a part of me, when I was a younger man and before I was in Jesus Christ. I lived or died according to how my favorite sports teams performed on the field or on the court. I, I have one particular memory, and I, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed or I'm not afraid to share it with you because this is before I was in Christ. One particular day, I was probably 24, 25 years old, and the Washington Redskins, they will for always, forever be the Washington Redskins. <laughs> they lost 
to the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm a pastor, so I shouldn't say I hate the Philadelphia Eagles, but I don't have any much love for the Philadelphia Eagles. It's kind of like we don't like the Raiders around here, whatever city they're in nowadays. right? We don't, we don't like the Raiders. Washington Redskins fans don't like the Eagles. And, and so on one particular occasion, the Redskins lost to the Eagles. And, and this just this set me off. I, I, I responded in a fit of rage. I, I broke my remote control, and I, I busted up my TV. It's an old picture tube TV. It's, it's not as fragile as these TVs we have today. It took a little more work to bust this thing up, but I did it. I got my, I got my money's worth. You want to bust a TV today, all you got to do is throw a sippy cup at it. It'll... <laughs> I know that from experience. I didn't throw the sippy cup, though. I don't care if it's the Super Bowl, a playoff game, a regular season game, a preseason game. Why on earth would I get so mad about the result of a football game? Football game. It has absolutely zero as far as I am concerned, zero eternal significance. When I came to faith in Christ, I realized very quickly that if I was going to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in my walk with it, I was going to have to put that away. I had to resolve in my mind to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And by and large, I've, I've been able to do that. Now I can pretty much watch. My, I still have my favorite sports teams, don't get me wrong. But, but now I can just kind of watch, and I can just kind of enjoy the game, whether they win or lose. The point is, when one's mind and thought processes are not ordered around God, then all that we do and all that we live for, it becomes absolutely meaningless. This is what Paul is describing of the greater Gentile world in his day. There are many people in our day as well who this could be said of. Now he goes on in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the, the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Darkened in their understanding is another way of saying that their, their reasoning process is, is darkened. In the Bible, light and darkness are typically competing metaphors. Darkness speaks of life separated from God. Uh, whereas light speaks of life with God. Never forget, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the, the light of life. Okay? The, the people that Paul describes here, they're engulfed in darkness because they are alienated from God, from the life of God. They're, they're cut off from the source of true light. But again, I want you to understand that Paul stresses here that they are only cut off from God because of the deliberate and willful choices that they have made in their mind and in their reasoning processes. Notice the phrase, the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance here does not mean that they don't know any better. It doesn't mean that they're just dumb. That's not what it means. They are only ignorant of God because of a willful and deliberate choice to reject Him, which is seen in this last phrase, their hardness of heart. In the Bible, the heart is the source of all loyalties. And so when, when your loyalty lies somewhere other than, than God, you will quite naturally reject him in your thinking and in your reasoning. So now's the point in which we're going to go over to Romans chapter 1. 
So if you found that in your Bibles, now you can go over there. It will also be up here on the screen as well. Everything that Paul has just said here in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, but in an expanded way, in Romans chapter 1. So beginning in verse 18 there, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's describing a, a willful unwillingness to respond accordingly to the truth of God. That's what he's saying. Verse 19. Listen to what he says. Pay very close attention. For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about the greater Gentile world in the ancient world. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says that God has very plainly revealed himself in his creation. Think about everything you just said there. From the very beginning of time, right up until today, and everywhere in between, God has left himself a very powerful witness of himself in creation. Whether it's the glory of the sun and the moon, the constellations above, whether it's the majestic mountains, the fruited plains, the vast forests, the vast oceans teeming with life, God has left himself a, a, a witness here. According to Romans chapter 1, all of these things have always declared the glory and the existence of God. Last January... We had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. It's the first time I'd ever been to the Grand Canyon. And i got to tell you, I'd like to go back. We were there in January, and it snowed while we were there. You think about driving on the, the rim road, the Grand Canyon, with snow. Like, and then, I mean, it, anyway. I'll never forget. I walked out onto the rim of the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? I walked out and I stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon for the very first time. And the very first thing that came to my mind was anyone who stands here and believes that this happened over a period of billions of years through natural processes has way more faith than I do. Way more faith than I do. It has been said that modern atheism requires more faith. Than, it required, than faith in God. And I, I would say that is absolutely true. In recent decades, beloved, God has advancements in science and technology have opened new doors into the glory of God's creation that, that man beforehand could never see before. How, DNA. DNA is absolutely mind-boggling. It, it's so intricate. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And of course, you can't see DNA with the naked with a naked eye. Now I, I don't know what I'm if what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true because there's no way that I can verify this. But I but I've read this. Scientists believe that if you could take every strand of DNA in your body, you have I don't know gazillion cells in your body and they all have DNA. And if you could take every strand of DNA out of your body and string them end to end, they would stretch from the Earth to the Sun and back to the Earth. 61 times. 61 times. That's in your body. Just your body. My body. 
That, that is absolutely mind-boggling. And, and when scientists today, they, they peer into the intricacies of DNA, you, modern science, they don't want to admit it, but a lot of scientists now, when they look at things like DNA, they are convinced this did not just happen all by itself. There is a creator, there is a, a God who designed all of this. I, I want to share with you a quote from a scientist who was a, a Christian. His name is Ernest Walton. Who was Ernest Walton? He, he won the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Nobel Prize in Physics in 1951. He was the first human being to artificially split the atom. He's a pretty smart guy. And he peered deeply into God's creation. And this is what he said. One way to learn the mind of the Creator is to study His creation. We must pay God the compliment of studying His work of art, and this should apply to all realms of human thought. A refusal to use our intelligence honestly is an act of contempt for Him who gave us that intelligence. Somebody say amen to those words. That is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. And without any other form of revelation, Paul says mankind can look at creation and they can know, know with certainty that there is a God who created it. To reject this knowledge in one's mind is to reject God. It is to show contempt for Him who has given us the ability to think and the ability to reason. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, for all, Romans, for although they knew God, they, they did not honor Him. They knew God. They knew that there is a, a God who existed in creation. Not in creation, but He created creation. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became, look at it, futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. It says the very same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. Rather than, than worshiping the ultimate reality, they, they deliberately chose to reject their creator and worship worthless images, claiming to be wise. Modern atheists today, liberal scholars today, they would argue that the way to enlightenment begins with an outright rejection of God in one's mind. That's what they will tell you. Oh, forget about that, that thinking about God. Just forget about that. And once you let go of that in your mind, then you will be enlightened. Then you will know the truth. That's the way of modern atheism. That's the way of, of liberalism today. The Apostle Paul says just the opposite of that right here. He says the road to darkness begins with the premise in your mind that there is no God. Conversely, the road to enlightenment begins with an affirmation of God in one's mind. Now, let's take a time out here and talk about something else. I believe what God, because sometimes this is on our mind, and we need to know how to, to answer this. I believe that God reveals more of himself to those who respond accordingly to his revelation in creation. So the age-old the age adage, the objection from, from atheists today is to us Bible-believing Christians, well, Tell me, what, what happens to the, that man in the jungles of Africa who doesn't have a Bible and has never heard the name Jesus Christ? What happens to that man when he dies? Please tell me, oh Bible man, 
How could a good and loving God send such a man to hell for all eternity for not believing in someone he never even heard of? Maybe you've heard that objection before. Maybe you weren't quite so sure how to answer that objection. I believe what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1 is those who respond accordingly in their mind to the revelation of God and creation, God will reveal more of himself to them. So here's an example, two examples actually. When I was in seminary, I took a, a, a missions class. We actually had a, a real missionary in that class. It was so nice to meet a real missionary. And he had been a, a missionary to native peoples in northern Canada. And he shared this story with our class. And he says to us, yeah, this really happened. When the first white man showed up way up in the far reaches of northern Canada, they were missionaries. When they showed up and they, they met the, the native people there, they'd never seen a white man, they'd never heard the name Jesus before. The very first thing these people say to the, the white men is, where's the book? Where's the book? We're expecting someone with the book. You're the one with the book, aren't you? How fascinating is that? What book were they talking about? They were talking about the Bible. They were talking about the book that tells the story of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what they were looking for. It's exactly what they were waiting for. Maybe you don't believe me, but this is the testimony of this man. And I have every reason in the world to believe him. But there are other cases as well, other examples. There has been documented evidence in recent decades of Muslims in closed countries like Iran, where the name of Jesus, you can't even say it, the Bible's outlawed. And these people have been coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And they have been reporting that Jesus has revealed himself to them in dreams. Now, I don't know how you feel about dreams, but there are a lot of dreams in the Bible. God reveals himself in dreams throughout the Bible. And there have been case after case after case where these people, these Muslims in the, in the Muslim world who don't have a Bible, they don't have access to Jesus, to the name of Jesus, or the story of Jesus but they're coming to faith in Jesus. How's that happening? Because I'll tell you how. Because the God of this world, who created this world, is a good and loving God. And he has has left a witness of himself in this creation. And when mankind responds accordingly to this revelation, he will reveal more of himself to them. Now, conversely, those who suppress the truth of God in their minds, they will eventually reach a point of no return. And this is the path that these Christians were on before they came to faith in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word for callous means to be dead to feeling or the inability to feel pain. In a spiritual context, it conveys the idea of a a loss of sensitivity of of right or wrong, a a loss of sensitivity to consciousness, conscious and, and decency. And this is where a continual rejection of God always leads. It leads to a hard, impenetrable shell that renders people insensitive to God and His ways. It leads to a vicious cycle of rejection of God, rejection of His ways, leading to sin that then becomes habitual sin and habitual rejection of God. And round and round and round and round it goes until the human conscience is completely dead, resulting in a life given up to what Paul says here in Ephesians, to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word for sensuality here 
it almost always, not always, but almost always, it speaks of unrestrained sexual behavior, unrestrained sexual sin. And unrestrained sexual sin, it was very prevalent in Paul's day. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. Going back to Romans chapter 1, Paul says this of unrestrained sexual behavior. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And I don't have to explain to you what he's talking about. I think you can all figure that, that out. Those words were written 2,000 years ago, but they could have just as easily have been written yesterday, couldn't they? Unfortunately. Our world is no less filled with people who have rejected the knowledge of God in their minds. They have become callous to his design for life. In every area of life, this is true. But especially in our day, it is true in the area of God's design for human sexuality. They have outright rejected the God of creation, exchanging the worship of him, the ultimate reality, for the worship of something that, that only ultimately leads to emptiness, futility, darkness, and complete separation from God. You know it as well as, as I do. I don't have to stand up here and convince you of this. But the saddest part of all, I don't know if it's the saddest part of all, maybe it is, it's very sad to me. The saddest part of all is that, that some of these, these same people claim to be followers of Christ. It's, it's personal to me and my family. And I'm sure it is for some of you as well, the culture in which we live. But with that said, I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. He's not talking about learning facts about Christ. He's talking about learning the man. He's talking about learning the person. He's talking about learning the way of Christ, learning his ethics, learning his values. That's what he means here. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So if you like to mark your Bibles or take notes, notice what he said, in him, in Jesus. I told you before. Mentioned it earlier, I'm going to mention it again. 36 times in Ephesians, we see this phrase, in Christ, in Him, in Jesus. It's the idea of in Christ, which is the idea that if you are in Christ, this is your identity, this is who, who you are. Everything is bound up in this idea of, of being in Christ. Paul says, this is who you are to his audience. If you have trusted and believed in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted and believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and He was raised to life again for the forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life, if you, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are now in Christ. And this now is your identity. Your identity is not in your ethnicity. Your identity is not in your sexuality. Your identity is not in your material possessions. It's not in your favorite sports teams. Your identity is in Christ. This is who you are. Paul says, now become who you are. Live in accordance with your new identity. He says in verse 22, to put off your old self 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, renewed in your thinking, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you'll notice that Paul mentions the idea of putting off and and putting on. This is the language of changing clothes. It's the language of putting off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes. He wants them to put off the old clothes of the former life and put on the new clothes of Christ. I don't know about you. Maybe you can identify with this. But I have some old raggedy clothes in my wardrobe. I didn't wear them today. You're welcome. (laughs) That I like to wear every once in a while, just usually around the house when no one else is around. I got this one particular old raggedy shirt. It is old and it's raggedy. It's got holes in it. And Lena's going, yep, you got it. Yep. It's ripped. The colors are faded. It's, It's stretched. It's stretched so much an elephant could wear it and feel comfortable in it. It's ugly. And every once in a while when I'm wearing it, my kids will go, Dad, that shirt is ugly. It makes you look like a bum. And it does. I don't deny that. The truth is I'm not a bum. Whether you believe that or not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a bum. But, what, but what's kind of funny or ironic about that is there was a time in my life when I actually really wanted to be a bum, a beach bum. Remember, I grew up on the beach, and my, my mind was really ordered around, around that idea. Oh, I had it all planned out when I was young. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be a carpenter, which I was. I'm going to work for myself, which, yes, technically I did. I'm going to be a carpenter. I'm going to work for myself. And so that way, nobody can tell me what to do. And when the waves are good, I can ditch work, and I can go surfing. Oh, yeah, that was going to be the life. I wanted to be a true beach bum. And for a couple of years, I guess you could say, I was. That's who I was. My mind was ordered around those things and other things, all of which I now know were completely and utterly worthless. That's who I was then. That's not who I am now. So why should I dress like this? Why should I dress like this? If your identity is truly in Christ, then your life will be dressed in the clothes of Jesus Christ. And you will begin to look like Him. You will begin to adopt His way of life, His way of thinking. You will adopt His character, His love, His grace, His mercy. Christian, we do need to look like Christ in the world in which we live. I know I've said some things here today that some people out there would would deem offensive. I'm not trying to be offensive. And we need to say these things in love and with grace and mercy. But if your identity is in Christ, you will look like Him. You will adopt His way of life. You will adopt His character. You will adopt His ethics and His morals. The one thing, speaking along those lines again, a lot of people will point out today, well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality in the Bible. Jesus didn't condemn a lot of things in the Bible. He never condemned bestiality, pedophilia. And we would not stand here and say that he would be for those things either, would we? 
we wouldn't. You will adopt his ethics and his morals. Jesus, by the way, did affirm God's design for human sexuality and marriage more than one place. You will adopt his love for God and his love for others. The call of the Christian life is to forsake the worthless pursuits of this world and the worth, worthless pursuits of self and to exchange that for an all-encompassing pursuit of growing more and more and more like Jesus Christ each and every day. No one gets this right 100% of the time, myself included. I'll be the very first person to admit that. And I think this is why Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Day by day, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Day by day, we must make a conscious decision of which wardrobe we're going to wear. Am I going to wear the clothes of the old self? Am I going to wear the clothes of this world? Or am I going to wear the clothes of Jesus Christ? So I leave you with this challenge then. Make this a daily habit, if you can. Incorporate this into your life. Some of you may be the type of person who picks out the clothes you're going to wear the next day the previous evening. I don't know how you do that. I don't do that. But maybe you do that. For the rest of us, we might just pull our clothes out of our drawers the day we're going to wear them. We have no idea. But whatever the case is, whether it's the night before or the day of, every single day when you choose the clothes that you're going to, to wear, think about the spiritual clothes that you're going to wear that day as well. And make a conscious decision in that moment to put on the clothes of Jesus Christ and to walk worthy of him. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that I have had to stand here and to preach your word, and I, and I pray that you've been honored through it. I know some difficult things were said. I actually just want to stop and pray for the culture and the society in which we live. Let's pray, Lord, that, that our culture at large would wake up to the reality of who you are. They would see you. They would see the reality of who you are, whether it's through your creation or whether it's through hearing the gospel, whether it's through hearing a sermon such as this, whatever it is, whether it's peering deep into your creation to things like DNA and the atom. Lord, I just, I just pray for the wind of revival to blow in our nation, in our society, in our culture. I pray that, that we as, as your people would be diligent to pray along those lines every, every single day. And we would pray for the lost around us everyone who's living for something that's empty and meaningless, that we'd make a point to do that. But also that we would be diligent to pray when we pray for revival, that we would also recognize that revival always begins with God's people. Biblically, that's true. It's where it starts. And so may, may it begin with us. 
And may it begin every single day as we make that conscious decision to, to clothe ourselves in you, in Christ. And I pray all of these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one, one more song. And it is, it's a song of invitation. The Lord is speaking to you in some way. I would encourage you to respond. And you can respond where you are. But maybe you should come to this altar and respond. You can kneel right here and pray. Or I'd be happy to pray with you as well. We're going to have baptism in a couple of weeks. Maybe there's someone here who's never been baptized. Maybe, maybe you've never really trusted in Jesus Christ and believed that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and was raised to life again. I would be overjoyed to, to be with you at the beginning of that journey. And so if you want to start that journey today, I would invite you to come down and talk with me and maybe we can baptize you in a couple of weeks. But whatever's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.